Welcome to Classical Education, a podcast for those who believe in rediscovering the art of asking questions, engaging in conversation, and attending to the ideas at the heart of well-ordered teaching and learning. Adrian Fries and Trey Bailey invite you to join them on a journey in pursuit of the true, the good, and the beautiful as we participate in the great conversation and listen to the many voices coming from the world of classical education. Adrian and I are here with Karen Glass. Karen is a longtime educator and someone who uh, may be familiar to a lot of uh, homeschoolers who are familiar with the work of Charlotte Mason. But I was introduced to Karen's work when I started uh, as a first year teacher at a classical Christian school. And uh, not too long uh, after I showed up, I was handed her book, Consider This. And there was a, a lady who was working for the school who was uh, working very hard to help uh, the teachers and the staff there um, come to an understanding of how Charlotte Mason would be helpful to a classical Christian school and trying to uh, bring in um, some different people who could help advise. And she encouraged us to all read, uh, consider this. And I very quickly uh, went on to read her book, In Vital Harmony. And I have to say that that is uh, the book that um, is probably in my, I'd say, top three recommendations when people ask me, uh, what book should I read as an educator? And uh, it also is a book that really strikes at the heart of something that is very important to me and I, I know is important to Adrian, which is the, in, the, the importance of leading with principles and allowing those principles to inform our actions as, as teachers and really just as human beings. So Karen, uh, welcome. Well, thank you very much for having me. Yeah, we're so excited. Look, Karen and I have been chatting recently and having a jolly time just talking about many things we're both passionate about. And one of them is the art of asking questions. And so Trey and I usually have questions prepared, but we don't today because we're just going to model what it looks like to ask good questions. <laughs> and we're going to let Karen sort of uh, explain why uh, she wanted to come on to talk about this because I don't think this is something you've talked about on any other podcast before. I, I've not talked about this anywhere publicly. Most of this, most of what I'm, I'm sharing with you today is coming to, it's still most in my head. I haven't written anything about this yet. I, it, it's, it's a hope for a future project and a topic that I'm exploring, but I haven't really talked about it anywhere. So what I think I'm going to do is just kind of give you my, sort of uh, bring you along on my journey uh, how, you know, where, where, where my thinking kind of, where this was born, this, you know, this idea and interest in just focusing on questions. And then I want to hear, like, anytime, at any point, like, what questions arise for you while I'm talking about asking questions. So in the course of loads and loads and loads of online discussions and, you know, educational forums and Facebook groups and back in the day email groups, I can remember saying, because I believe it, believed it and still do, I I would say, or, you know, answer somebody's question, I would say something along the lines of, um, 
sometimes the question is more important than the answer. Because a lot of times, especially with homeschool moms, um, they want to skip straight to the answer. Like, how do I do this? What curriculum should I buy? And those are answers. And in trying to understand things, a lot of times they're just looking straight to the answer and they haven't even really asked the right, right questions yet. Or maybe they are asking questions and they, and they just aren't finding definitive, complete, you know, um, concrete and authoritative answers. So they're still asking questions that they feel like they can't get answers to. And so to all of that, I would often say, sometimes the question is more important than the answer. Mm. And then, I don't know, I just woke up one day. Oh, go ahead, Trey. Well, just, just on that point, what, what would you say happens to a answer if it's not uh, sort of preceded with the right question? Or, or what's a risk of happening? Well, if you don't know what the question is and you have an answer, you, you might think it's the answer to a different question. You know, it might not even be the answer to your question. If you don't have a question, how do you know you have the right answer? You know, I mean, if somebody, you know, your math teacher stands up here and says the answer is 17. I mean, if you don't know what the question is, there's no application. You don't have a way to apply it. That's, I mean, I'm just answering your question on the fly. That's how it feels to me. Like if you get an answer without a question, it doesn't have anything to, you know, to sort of anchor it. Mm -hmm. um, so one day, like I said, I just, all of a sudden, it just kind of struck me. I keep, I kept saying that to myself. And all of a sudden I was like, well, no, why is that? You know, why, why does it matter that the question, why is the question more important than the answer? It was like, it was the, that was my question. Then all of a sudden it's like, you know, why do I need a question? And I had had a, a part of that grew out of an experience that I had back in 2016. I was in the States for several months. I did a lot of traveling and probably 10 or 12 times. I spoke to um, groups of homeschoolers and educators, and I was talking a lot about narration. And I had this little really quick illustration that I would do because I, it, it really illustrated in a, in a concrete and quick way why narration was different from kind of the usual, you know, testing and quizzing that was part of most of us, our typical school experience. So what I did is I, I was illustrating, used Charlotte Mason's picture study, and I, would, I, I carried around a piece of art and I would put it up for everyone to see. And I had them just look at it for a minute, which is what, how Charlotte Mason's picture study starts, and then took the picture away. And then I divide, divided the room into two groups. And for, to one half, I would say, okay, we're going to do what Charlotte Mason had us do. And you, I want you to you know, take a partner in groups of two and narrate to each other what you saw in the picture. Just tell each other what you, you, know, what you noticed about the picture. And I, this didn't take very long. I just let it go on for 30 seconds while you know, the murmur and buzz. And then I would say, ask them to stop and then let the other person who'd been listening have a few seconds to say something that the other person that they had noticed and the other person hadn't mentioned. So everybody got a short, a small chance to narrate. And then I would ask them a question. I, just, I would say, okay, I'm gonna ask you a question. And I would ask them something like, if you had been standing next to the artist when he painted this picture, what might you have heard? So it would be something, a question that was just gonna take you outside what you could see in the picture and make you think about something else and, and relate what you were looking at to something else in your mind. And that whole process 
really it wouldn't take much more than a couple of minutes. And then I would turn to the other side of the room and I said, okay, we're gonna have a different kind of lesson on picture study. And I would ask them, I said, I would, said I'm gonna ask you some questions. And I would ask them the most mundane and inane questions like, what color shoes were this person wearing? How many candles were in the boat? How many of them were lit? What color is the necklace? It just inane, horrible. Very few people, if any, could ever answer the weird things that I was asking. Um, and then I would ask them, how many of you feel kind of dumb because you can't answer my questions? And not everybody would raise their hand to that, but we've all had that experience, right? In the classroom, just sitting there, you know, not really able to answer the questions that are being asked. And that isn't really the whole point of the lesson, like the, the whole point of the illustration. That's just kind of the setup because my next question for everyone was really the point. And I would ask them, when you come back next week, you know, you're my classes, and I say it's time for picture study, and I put a picture up here in front of you, what is going to be happening in your mind? Right. And so the narration group, you know, what's going to be happening in your mind? You are going to be thinking with words, looking for the words to describe what you're saying, forming sentences and language to be able to describe and narrate, because, you know, that's what you're going to have to do. And I turned to the other half of the group, and I said, what are you, what are you doing? while you're looking at this picture and they're like counting things, you know? And, and the point of it was like in the moment when I was doing this, um, because it's, it's an, it was my illustration for narration as a relationship building exercise, you know? The point of this was, you know, which one of these two things is gonna help you learn to love and enjoy and have a relationship with art and picture study? You know, are you ever going to, you know, you're, are you going to care? Which one of these things is going to make you care about what you're learning? So once I had done that, like so many times, it, that really drove home to me the point about how the kinds of questions that we were asking our students were kind of the mechanism or the, or the method that was teaching them how to think. Mm -hmm. we were we were building their their intellectual habits of how they were going to be thinking by the kind of questions that the teacher was asking so the teacher still like was still the one who's asking a question and narration is kind of a you know asking a child to narrate is in itself um some form of the question tell you know what do you know and you just invite the child to say that whatever it is what do you know and then, of course, those other questions are extremely specific, looking for specific bits of information that you may or may not have, you know, picked up along the way. And so that, that, that process of, of thinking about questions kind of led me to that moment where, I, where I'm like, okay, okay, this is a topic that I really want to explore. Like, what is it? especially because you see it and you hear it all the time, there's the concept of Socratic questioning is very, you know, very uh, prevalent in classical education. But I, I've done some reading with on Socratic questioning and I sometimes think that people are missing the point um, because yes. I don't... Oh, we ahead. should, we should make a point. <laughs> we should certainly make a point to, to, to talk about uh, Socratic questioning in particular. Uh, before we get too far down that trail, I just want to pause and say that I love your story 
because it's an illustration of a teacher using her God-given authority in the classroom in a humane way, right? Because what, uh, what student really, frankly, child or adult, is going to raise his or, hand, his or her hand and say, well, actually, that, that's, a, that's a trivial question, right? <laughs> because there, there's, there's a, a relationship there that's established between teacher and student, and there's a submission to a, an authority there, and there's a willingness to, to sort of go along. But like you say, what sort of relationship is the teacher creating um, not only between herself and the, the student, but also with the student and, and the text or, or the image or the story or what have you. Right. And as I said, I, I don't really have like, like all of my you know, intellectual exploration of these ideas is still kind of an ongoing thing for me. I haven't really reached any insight or conclusions that I think are, you know, particularly remarkable. For me, it's still an in-process thing, which is why it's kind of interesting to do this as a podcast and explore these questions with some other people. Um, so I, I kind of have got myself to the point where I feel like the kind of questions that we ask, or when you have a question, you hear a question, it sort of creates a mental posture in some way, you know? So, so you know, it's either it's either relationship building or it, it, it can feel antagonistic, you know, you, you can feel like you're being attacked by a question, or like you say, a kid isn't going to raise their hand and say, is it trivial? And there's, you know, Socratic questions are one thing, but I've also watched a lot of, um, just because by way of, you know, random interest, uh, courtroom proceedings. And it's, there's a lot of questions that are part of a courtroom procedure, and they have to shape and frame their questions as much as possible so that the only answer that they want to hear is yes or no. Like everything is, you know, that's all they want to give, they want the whole question to just have a yes or no answer. It's very black and white, very concrete. And those kind of questions, I mean, they may have a place in a courtroom, but in a classroom and in an educational um, setting, they're, they're, I would say little, they're not, there's not a whole lot of use to those kinds of questions that just have a yes or no answer. Right. Karen, I'd like for our listeners to hear your idea of what a Socratic question is, because I don't think everybody listening really knows what that is. Well, I, I don't even know that I can have a definition that I can give, but I, my experience with Socratic questions, like my own personal firsthand experience, is just reading the dialogues, mm -hmm. you know, reading the dialogues and, and that are written in that format. So really, yeah. see, really probably didn't happen exactly that way. You don't really have, this isn't really that you're hearing Socrates question somebody. What you're really getting is Plato giving you his thoughts about how to um, think, think through an argument or uh, think about ideas in the form of a question and answer dialogue. So it's a little bit it's a little bit of a construct, it's a little bit artificial in that way. But I was, so I was doing some reading recently about Socratic questions, and I don't even remember where what I ran across this. It's just somewhere on the internet. And it was talking about Socrates, and, and it described that his, his, idea, his idea of questioning, and, and so Socratic questions, is for the teacher to play the role of ignorance, to pretend in right. a way not to know 
so that all of the thinking that the questions that are asked are asked rather than being asked from a place where I have a foregone conclusion and I'm going to ask the questions that are going to lead my students to some conclusion that I'm going to take them to, but rather to ask the questions that are really going to make the, the, the answer have to think. How, yeah. how are they going to explain themselves to somebody who doesn't know? Yes, I think that's exactly right. And, and I think at my best moments, I, I will enter into this. Um, I've recently taught a, a history class to uh, middle school boys. And, you know, I, I have the opportunity to ask questions in such a way that although I know, or at least I, at least I feel like I have a fairly strong answer to, to this question, I want to hear what the boys have to say about it. I want to see them work through it and wrestle through it and perhaps even, um, you know, ask questions in such a way that will uh, allow them to um, to kind of have a just a good back and forth, which is precisely what Socrates wanted to do. Now, here, here's the rub. And I think one way to to imagine sort of what, what this scene would look like when Socrates was teaching is to just look at that famous painting of the School of Athens, right? And you can see all the various sort of characters and how they're interacting. And, and if I remember correctly, uh, there's there are some scowls on some faces. There's a guy who's mm -hmm. just ready to leave. And if you read the dialogues, some people do walk up and leave, right? They're just fed up with this guy. And so I think that the, the truly uh, Socratic uh, teacher has to be prepared for some students to walk out of class saying, well, that was ridiculous. Or <laughs> this guy has no idea what he's talking about. Unless you're doing that Unless you're being accused of, of being a gadfly uh, like Socrates, then you're, you're probably not applying his method. Right. So, so in a way, I was thinking about it while you were talking. So in a way, to answer the, the question was, what is a Socratic question? It's almost a question that arises out of playing dumb. You know, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. For, you know it's, not, it's not that you, you, know, you, 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 you ask a question that exposes the weaknesses in a way which is what would happen if, you know, if you really just an ignorant person, if you know, if you say something and they, you know, their minds kind of take it to the next step. Well, then, the, then the, there must, then this must be true or that, you know, if that's true, then here's a conclusion that I can reach based on what you said. And it, it exposes it. But if you really do it well, it should come across as I don't know. So, yeah. so explain, did mm -hmm. I get it right? So here's a funny little anecdote from just today. I was cleaning out the garage with my five-year-old son and um you know there's all sorts of stuff in there that's piled up over the years and we found these little uh circular they look like little metal donuts with uh but they're super heavy and and my son picks one up and he says uh daddy is is this a wheel and i said you know i don't know what that is and to be honest i was busy doing something and i was just sort of blowing him off and he said well what is it? You know, just asking again, really wanting to know. And I looked at it and I said, well, I think it's a weight. And he said, well, how do you know it's weight if you don't, if you didn't know what it was earlier? <laughs> <laughs> I said, well, you got me on that one. <laughs> so sometimes, uh, you know, from the mouth of babes, uh, they can, they can enter into these types of questions that, um, yeah, uh, I think is exactly what Socrates would do. Well, how do you, if you didn't know this other thing before, how do you know this? And, and just this back and forth of questioning. Or, you know, he, or he asks, you know, somebody is talking and, and, you know, they use some language and he's like, well, what does that mean? What does that word mean? Mm -hmm. You know, and he wants to clarify, just like a person who doesn't really get it or understand. 
And you don't always get the impression, I mean, obviously Plato wrote these dialogues, but you get the impression that if there was a real Socrates, he wouldn't always have a plan in mind where we had to land, you know, we have to reach this certain point and we have to get to this conclusion. Mm-hmm. You know, he really wants to let people do their own intellectual work. And that's, I think from in an educational realm, and, and to some extent, you know, even in, in Christianity, you need to let people do their own intellectual work and work through the ideas and come to their own conclusions because then they own them. Mm-hmm. And it's real knowledge to them as opposed to just a piece of information that they, they can recollect because that's it, not what education really is. Right. So this this is why I, one of my favorite dialogues of Plato is the Theotetus. And I, I'm not even sure if I'm saying that right because I don't know Greek. But we are going to be talking to Matt Bianco about this particular dialogue soon. And I, I love that um, that dialogue so much because it, he talks about his grandmother and what midwifery is and having a, you know, being a midwife. And it's called myutics. And when I read that dialogue, I was really looking for sort of the process of a midwife. And I found, I don't remember them right now, but there were like five steps. And it all really revolved around coaching because the midwife can't be pregnant, can't birth the baby. The midwife has to be there to help the mom birth the baby. So what does the midwife do? She coaches. She encourages. She comes alongside. And so I I went in and and I started looking in more detail in Charlotte Mason's exams. So I I started looking at her exam questions and I realized so many of them fell under the myutic form of questioning because they were questions like, tell how, tell about, explain what you noticed, explain what you know about, describe. And these are all sort of- Right, all versions of that tell what you know question. Questions that force you to do the work of remembering and forming sentences and making connections so that you can actually show that you, you know, birthing new knowledge. And in the process of that, what I love about how Charlotte Mason's program works with the uh, layering upon layer upon layer of literature in, in the beautiful books that over the course of many years of reading really great books and going out and studying nature and making all these connections in their history lessons and everything, after three, four years, the students start to make all these connections so that then you see when you tell them explain what you know about this or tell about this. When they do that, they start including all the knowledge from other things they've already read. To me, that's what a classical education should be doing. Right, right. And the the questions that we ask to create that environment where that can happen. Exactly. um, Play a really important role because they can't be those what I call analytical questions where you're asking for specific pieces of information, right. like pick out this detail for me. They have to be something that requires real mental right. work, labor yes. you know, in the student's own mind. Exactly. Well, this gets back to my question earlier about what do you think happens to the answer when we don't have the right question? And, you know, this is in part what we're, what we're puzzling out because we want to figure out how to ask the right questions early on 
Um, my experience has been that uh, students uh, bring a lot of baggage, let's say, expectations, a certain understanding of how this whole thing is going to work, this relationship between student and school, student and teacher. And a lot of that, I think, frankly, comes down to how they're habituated to this question and answer relationship. <laughs> About 13 years ago, the summer before I got married, my brothers and I uh, did about a hundred mile trek on the Appalachian Trail. It took us about a week. And our end destination was McAfee's Knob, which is, uh, I'd say, one of the most beautiful spots on the trail there in Virginia. Uh, just sort of juts out over the, the, the Roanoke Valley. It's, it's a gorgeous spot to end a, a week-long trek. Well, what we didn't know is that you can you can drive up to the top of it pretty close and, and just sort of park and walk out to it, and there it is. Well, of course, we walked 100 miles to get there. And then when we showed up smelly and, and, and tired, and, and it was glorious, and we saw all these other people who had just popped out of their car, and there it was. And I, I think there's something about how, you know, students, let's say, journey with questions over, over a period of time allows them to experience those destinations or those answers in a different way than someone who just uh, sort of um, thought they could just hop out and, and there it was or, or just have it handed to them, so to speak. There are some, I went looking on Amazon for book titles about questions and, and there are so many, so many. And a lot of them include the word powerful, like how to ask powerful questions hmm. and that, that kind of thing. And so that, that just, I didn't read any of them. I just was looking at, at the titles and it, but it really has made me think about how powerful th that they say that for a reason, because questions have that kind of power to put us in a mental, you know, state of being good or bad, because there are bad questions, you know, like, like leading questions or gotcha questions, you know, trick questions, there, there's bad questions. And I mean, didn't we all have that college professor, right? Who would put a trick question or two on the exam? Uh, just, just trying to trip you up. <laughs> well, well, certainly for some reason, um, I, I'd say middle school students uh, do seem to think that 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 the trick questions are just sort of part and parcel of of uh, uh, an exam. Like they just have this suspicion that something about this. Um, test is, is designed to to trip me up and I, I think it I think it comes down to how a lot of um, testing has been done uh, in schools uh, I'm thinking of the and and it, it's not necessarily this, this is this is not quite trick questions but it's it's questions that um, well let's see if we can figure out how to how to how to define this because I'll tell you I'll tell you that I just sort of instinctually have a problem with it. Maybe, Karen, you can diagnose me and tell me why I have a problem with this. <laughs> but are, are you familiar with the SRA reading system? Uh, I mean, I literally did that when I was in elementary school back in okay. the 70s. So, so you've been but, there. So, so I may not have seen it since, but I saw it then. So yes. Well, tell our okay. listeners what that is. Well, it's the, I think SRA stands for like scientific reading assessment or something like that. Okay. But essentially it is uh, these very short, uh, stories uh, like that are cards. they're like on cards on cards in, in filed away in a box and they're color coded and, and the idea is that you move up 
with your uh, colors are matched to, to reading levels and, and the ideas that you are supposed to progress through them. Uh, and, and of course, uh, you know, what that often leads to is, you know, everybody knows, you know, Johnny over here, who's, who's a purple or, and, and that may be a great color. I can't remember, but you know, it's not quite as high up the color ladder as, as this gold fella over here. And so I, I think it, I think it creates some unnecessary and unhealthy uh, types of competition in the classroom uh, related to reading. But the content itself is is not stellar. Um, and yeah. then the, the way it's tested on is you're timed to answer these these questions and, and you're looking for those type of details. I, I, I would be a bit surprised I guess I wouldn't be overly surprised if it got as trivial as, you know, how many, you know, uh, exactly. How candles many? Were that's, that's all you really need to say. <laughs> how many? <laughs> but, I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty close. That's right, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> that's all you need to say. How many? <laughs> no, but I, here's I, the thing. It was very common, uh, you know, when, when I was asked to administer this, um, so this is a bit of a confessional for me, so just forgive me, please. Uh, I would have, um, this one student in particular, he was the only student who really had any consistent issue with the SRA program. Uh, other students would. They'd have questions or feel like they um, were, were, you know, th that they got the right answer, but then the answer card said it was a different one and they'd want to debate the issue. And But the one who most consistently wanted to ask questions about which answer was correct was the, the young man that I had who had grown up uh, with a Charlotte Mason homeschool education. And he was always coming to me and saying, Mr. Bailey, I think this is wrong. <laughs> and I just, I haven't figured out exactly uh, what it, what it is about it that was obviously sort of, you know, giving him some trouble, but I, I felt bad administrating it myself because there's, there's something about that approach to reading and asking questions about reading that just doesn't seem right. Something's off about it. What is it? Well, there's a part of me that's just like, are you kidding me? They're still using these things. Yeah, they are. I, I don't, I didn't know that. I, I you know, Yeah. And you know what? I mean, Some classical not, schools are using them. I mean, are they the same things that were in my. Oh, no, no, they, they would, they would, they wouldn't want you to buy one and, and, and be done. You've got to buy the next version and the next version and the next oh, version. Okay. So the oh, they have to become more relevant. You know, the stories have to be more relevant to the culture. I don't recollect a single thing I ever read on an SRA card. So did I learn anything? Probably not. Um, but those, but the kind of those, that kind of situation, I can remember being told or taught as a, as a study technique, you know, to do this very thing, look at the questions and then read the text. So skim the text, yes. find the answers to the questions, the, the only questions you know you're going to have to be asked. Right, they, so, call this, they call this reading strategies. Right, so there's no, yeah. those kind of questions. I just, the, the very fact, regardless of what the questions actually are, the very fact that a child is looking at questions about a text like that, the kind of questions that are on those cards before they read the text, interferes with their relationship with what they're reading. It interferes mm -hmm. with the, I mean, in those cards, I don't know if it makes what difference one way or the other, but I mean, in if you're reading, you know, 
a, a book or a serious piece of writing that somebody has read, an author has written with an idea that they're trying to convey from their mind to the mind of the reader, those questions really, I, mean, I won't say absolutely always positively, but that you run a high risk of interfering with that connection between the author and the reader. If, if you're either you really run a high risk of having it be, you know, a stumbling box or block or distraction, because you, how can you know if the child is looking for the answer to this question, they aren't going to miss some important piece of insight or wisdom that would have mattered to them, but they just, they were distracted by this, these questions. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that the, We've raised generations of people who do not love to read. Um, they don't understand the art of reading well. They're caught up in the stress of making sure they can test well. You know, the teacher is stressed about not losing her job. The student is stressed about not testing well. The parent is stressed that the child's not going to get into college, you know? So there's this whole level of, of but see, I, ideas that we've just, we're turning people into data processing machines. So my question is in that context, because we're talking about questions at all. Charlotte Mason said that the two most important questions to ask yourself when you're starting to try to figure out what to do in the educational you know, process is what is a person and what is education? And if, ed you, if you define education as being able to test well, you, you've misdefined it as far as I'm concerned. So there's an answer, but you've answered wrong, you know? And if you start from the, if you start from that answer, you know, and here's, okay, here are these tests that we have to succeed at. Now you're just making an assumption, assumption that this is the answer to the question, what is education? But you didn't really ask it and think about it. I'm just thinking about what you said at the beginning, Trey, about what happens if you, you, know, if you jump to the answer without asking a good question, the right question. And that's kind of how I feel. Like if, if we think that those exams are the answer to the question, what is education? We're just wrong. We're just wrong. Um, well, it's, it's, yeah, it's, and it, it, it's, I, a, it's, it's a, a philosophical question that really the vast majority of the population doesn't have to think about. But if they did, like there would be a revolution in schools. Well, I, I remember when I decided to pull my kids out of public school and homeschool them. And my oldest was in third grade and I had one in first grade and one in kindergarten. I think that's what, no, third, second in kindergarten. And um, I was walking with a friend of mine who had been homeschooling for 10 years. And I was asking her, what curriculum should I buy? So I was asking the typical question. That was the question I asked her. And she goes, you shouldn't buy any curriculum until you know what your philosophy of education is. And I was like, I, I remember being completely baffled by that. And I was like, yeah. okay, I went to college I studied a lot of psychology, but I didn't remember ever hearing anything about a philosophy of education. And I was like, what is a philosophy of education? Like, and she's like, well, the public schools have a philosophy of education. And I was like, they do? Like, I had 
no, I'd never thought of this before. Right. And so and, if you start with that question, it's going to lead you to better answers than what curriculum should I buy? Right. So she said to me, don't buy any curriculum. Read stories to your children, enjoy them, and start getting books about philosophy of education and figure out what you want to do. And she said, the first year you homeschool is a wash anyway. It doesn't matter what you do. It's a wash because you're getting used to structuring your days around having a bunch of kids at home and teaching them to do chores that they've never done because they've been in school, having the cafeteria janitor clean up after them. They don't even know how to clean up after themselves, you know. So uh, I, I, that, I took her counsel and I mean, I just, we just went on walks. We looked at leaves. We got books. I said, okay, well, for history, we're just going to get books about all the 50 states and we're going to read about all the states. You know, I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I got a math curriculum that everybody said, you know, and I looked at the teacher manual and I said, well, I can understand this so I can use this. And I knew I needed a math curriculum, but my goodness, I didn't have any idea. And then it took me years of reading Charlotte Mason to finally understand, wow, that you're right. You have to understand what is a child. Mm-hmm. What is a child? What is it? Well, right. Charlotte Mason says, "What is a person?" I mean, that is, and yeah. that's. So when, she, so when she says her first, you know, educational principles: children are born persons. Then you have to ask, "What is a person?" That's a very Socratic thing to say, right? right. You, you do a whole just, dialogue. You can't just throw out a word out there. You have to explain what you're talking about. Yeah. One of the things that I, I don't know where we are, how we are for time, but one of the things that I when I was just trying to explore this idea about questions is I went looking in the Bible because I wanted to see like what kind of questions are in the Bible. And to, I haven't finished looking for all of them because I'm never going to find them all, but <clears throat> there's all different kinds of questions. But I looked at the um, just Genesis chapter three and there's, there's two questions. There's the question that the serpent asks Eve, you know, did God say this? And so this is, I think this is kind of the root of my thinking that the kind of questions that we ask create a mental posture because now there's a, there's a doubt. Um, you know, the question is, is making you doubt reality, doubt truth. And then God's question, come, he comes along later and he says, Adam, where are you? And I mean, it's, he didn't ask because he didn't know the answer. He was right. playing dumb, right? That's right. And, and, and he did it so that Adam would have to pause and think, oh, where am I? Uh, he, I'm hiding, you know? Yes. I'm, I, I'm hiding from you. And that, would, that was going to give him more insight than if God had just come out, you know, saying something instead of asking. Oh, that's such a profound question. And I think it resonates throughout all of Scripture, uh, this question of where are you? And think about God asking that question, right? Think about th- think about that that separation from God and God, God asking, "Where are you?" It, uh, yes, I mean, one that question in and of itself, um, you know, would take a lifetime to to answer, and and I think that in part is our life is answering that question uh, uh, that that God asks all of us, "Where are we?" Um, I, I want us to think a, a little bit about well, this word curriculum. And perhaps one of the things that, that we can try to encourage our listeners to do is, is to ask those follow-up questions, right? Okay, so what curriculum should I use? Well, what is a curriculum, right? And, and I, I, mean, that, I mean that really uh, 
specifically, right? The idea that a curriculum is a course, right? And so to ask what curriculum should I use is, is to ask something akin to what road should I go down? Well, kind of like your Appalachian Trail thing. You can get to this spot via the, you know, this highway, or you can get there this scenic way. That's exactly right. So, so it entirely depends on one hand where you want to go, and then on the other hand, how you want to get there, right? Mm-hmm. I want us to think about something that was that was very important to Charlotte Mason, which is uh, that the students care and learn to care. What do you think? is the relationship between caring and good questions. Well, I, I I don't know that you can create caring with the questions that you ask. I do know you can hinder the process of caring by those inane, you know, questions that that just, um, you know, touch on the surface of, of, you know, isolated facts that don't have any, you know, any connection or any meaning in and of themselves. So I think those kind of questions hinder relationship building. Um, And as I said, I feel like the kind of questions that we ask create the mental posture that our students are in and the atmosphere of answers, like where are the answers going to come from? how are we going to find the answers? Because ultimately, I feel like like a really primary goal for educating the way that we want to educate isn't so that you know that we can ask questions and our students can answer them, but so that we can help them learn how to ask those kinds of universal, meaningful questions that will put them on the kind of path so that you know the Adam, where are you kind of question where you know you're going to be always looking for that answer and, and refining your answer to those kinds of, you know, meaningful questions that will, so, you know, I, I don't know, in a, in, a, in a concrete situation, you're in a classroom and you're, you know, this, you, you have to have sort of um, like lower level steps to that. You want your kids to care about, you know, today we're, we're talking about, um, you know, the weather or, <laughs> You know, we're reading this particular book or we're, you know, we're exploring fractions and you work on helping your, your, your students learn to care about those things to the extent that you can because mm. you're constantly trying to put them in touch with as many parts of the universe as possible mm-hmm. so that they can get to those bigger, deeper questions, you know, as they, as they move along in their education. Karen, do you mind... Uh, if I ask anything about like how narration ties to questions, have you thought about that? Well, well, narration, the request for narration, like I said, is always a, some form of what sure. do you know? What do right. you know? It is just a form of that. And Charlotte Mason says about narration that it requires a child to ask themselves mental questions, like what comes next? So that you're doing those mental processes of um evaluating which parts of the thing are important to include in your narration so you're you're making value judgments so this is important you know i don't want to miss this and and when you narrate you know inevitably things get left out so you're choosing what to include and what not and that's an important you know mental questions that a child is asking themselves see that's what i think narration does is it puts the child in that spot where they have to perform some of this mental questioning 
Sure. And then they have to ask, you know, like Charlotte Mason said, they have to ask themselves what next. But to me, that's about order. Like you can't just, um, you can't just, you know, throw everything out there at once. You have yes. to start somewhere and, and go, you know, follow some path. And for a lot of things that kids narrate, it's just chronological. You start at the beginning and move forward, maybe. But, you know, if you're narrating, you know, a, a process or some, about a science experiment that you did, you know, you might choose another, you know, a cause and effect kind of narration or, or, or mm -hmm. order to what you're saying. So... Sure, there's so many ways you can narration. I think narration is one of those things where you, you don't say too much, but it's because you're hoping that kids will start asking themselves mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. those kinds of questions. Well, and I think um, one of the things I've noticed when I'm teaching teachers how to do narration is I like to tell them when in the beginning, what I call it is Socratic narration. So in helping the kids learn how to narrate, sometimes, you know, at first, especially middle school kids, it's not as hard for, you know, little people, the second mm -hmm. graders can do it. But when you get into those kids that are sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth grade, they've never narrated. I mean, they just go stone cold, right? And so <laughs> doing those Socratic questions, and it's, it, I've had a third grade teacher who she wasn't comfortable with narration. So, I said, it's okay to ask questions like, okay, who can tell what happened at the beginning of the story? And somebody will say something usually, you know, right. especially if you've got at least 10 kids in the classroom and it's harder for homeschoolers. It's really much harder, much harder. But then usually you'll have another kid that will want to add to that. And if you don't, you can add a detail to help spark the memory and say, oh, well, remember when the bird flew out the window what happened there you know you know, so right. it it's it's kind of a socratic question in that it's open-ended you're giving them a little teasing them with a little something to help get their memory going and and so and then if a student says something that you think well yeah the text was it was a pretty important part right and they kind of skim over it you can stop them and say wait tell me more about that like, tell me another detail about what happened right there, you know, and it's okay to do that. And I think in the beginning of learning how to narrate, it's, it's necessary sometimes. Have you had that experience? Well, I, 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 when I'm talking to people about narration and it's, you know, sometimes people will be like, you know, my kid gives me a one sentence summary. And that's not terrible because, you know, being able to summarize everything concisely, that's actually a, a really great skill to have. But, you know, I will say the same kind of thing as what you're saying. It's okay to say, can you tell me more about this right. night or this event or this, you know, and give them like a little teaser piece or starting point. Can you tell me more about this thing? It's, it's less a question in and of itself it's, as, as it is that invitation. Can you tell me more about, about something specific? And for yes. kids... Who don't have, then that way they don't have to just like 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 the empty you know there's nothing it's not empty there's something they can hook onto yeah. and go. Let me give you an example. I was teaching some children at my church in a little co-op, and this little boy, I think he's eight or nine. We were reading uh, the Courage of Sarah Noble in the class, and I asked him to narrate, and he started telling me it was kind of at the beginning of the book, so narration was new to them, and he started telling me about Sarah's dad, John Noble, and he just kind of said, well, you know, he was a country man. But then he just kept going. But there was a whole, like the whole chapter described John Noble. So it was kind of important. <laughs> so I said, 
Well, tell me more about what a countryman is. What does the text tell us that makes you think he was a countryman? And he was able to narrate the whole rest of the chapter, you know, but he was just going to kind of skim by it. But he knew it. All I had to do was say, tell me what the text tells us about a countryman. How do you know he's a countryman? And that's, right? that's, to me, that's a very Socratic kind of question because you play dumb a little bit, you know, you don't just assume the child knows the word or, or, you know, you pretend you don't know, or, or you know, you say, you ask, tell me more about this, explain yeah. this a little further. It's a very Socratic thing to do yeah. without necessarily, right. like I said, having some end goal in mind. Good. Right. Well, it's the teacher using again, that, that, that authority of saying, you know, I know that in order for the students to have a really robust and healthy relationship with the story, we all need to know what a countryman is in that example, mm-hmm. right? So, so that's something that needs to really be clear in our imagination. Um, we, that, that's not, that can't be missed. If it's missed, then there's something about our understanding of the story that is, that is, uh, that is not there, that should be. Um, so it seems to me that in a, in a classroom setting, uh, when you have uh, multiple narrators, uh, one of the things that you can do, and Jason Barney talks about this in his excellent uh, resource on narration, which is allowing students to fill in the gaps. And oftentimes, after they get in the habit of doing that, they will go back. And middle school boys especially love to point out, well, you missed this particular part that I, I remember. <laughs> and so, you know, you have, to, you have to caution them against hubris and uh, constantly <laughs> remind them that pride cometh before the fall. But uh, if they can do that, then they can kind of play the role of the teacher in asking those questions or asking for, for a little bit more from their from their fellow students yeah that's good what what else about questions are you thinking karen well like i said i haven't reached any great you know profound conclusions about it for me this is still an exploratory process so i really appreciate this discussion where we could just get in here and and talk about it and 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 hear you know compare our experiences with the different kinds of questions yes um because I, I do still think, like what I like I said at the beginning, I do still think that asking good questions and the right questions can be more important than than the answers. I think because, that's right because they shape they shape the way that we think. Yeah, they posture us. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I think you're quite right in your earlier comments to to point out that the questions don't create the caring, and I think this is important to to reemphasize. Because it seems to me that this is part and parcel of how a lot of uh, teachers operate. If if only I can ask the you know the right question, or if I can ask enough questions. And as we've been trying to emphasize, questions are important. But it's 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 not the question itself that's going to create the caring. Um, and so I think we need to we need to examine that a little bit closer because one of the things that goes on in, in a lot of uh, contemporary classrooms is, you know, the students show up and then they're sort of, you know, they're asked a question, well, what did we talk about yesterday? And then there's the great disappointment of like, uh, nobody knows, right? Or there's the question of, you know, trying to get a specific answer that um, in in an adult context, I'm thinking of like an adult Bible class at a church where, you know, the teacher asks some really obvious question, 
and nobody answers because it's like, come on, this is this is, uh, you know, you're you're just you're just trying to get you know some some back and forth, but you just don't know how to get the back and forth with your audience. You know what I mean? It's yeah, it's yeah, like yeah. Um, <clears throat> you know, sort of rhetorical questions that aren't asked in a rhetorical way, I guess. Um, but I, I would say that even young students don't enjoy being asked those questions. Because it's just like, okay, well, you know, the the kid who always raises his hand answers the questions, well, we'll just rely on him and he can carry the load and the rest of us can just skate by and, and you know, perhaps, you know, uh, this period will be over and then we can go have lunch or whatever it is. And so there's this there's this understanding, it seems, I see a lot of even veteran teachers do this, you know, well, if I can just ask them a question and then get an answer, somehow that'll spark this you know, um, this energy in the classroom. But what I think we're suggesting is that actually we should think very carefully about the question so that we ask a question that really strikes at the heart of um, those, those, those just innate sort of deeply humane questions that, that, that children really do wonder about. And maybe they would be a little bit surprised that you're wondering about it too. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think, you know, to, to kind of pull a playbook out of uh, Joshua Gibbs uh, approach, maybe you need to ask a really weird cryptic question. <laughs> and the students like, what is he talking about? <laughs> and maybe that's the approach. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot of different ways to go about it. But, but the thoughtfulness that goes into those initial questions, as you say, posture the student to then ask their own questions, because that's where the relationship is established, right? If it's just the teacher asking questions and then getting answers, you know, that's very different than a question that then sparks a bunch of other questions that the students are then thinking about asking. And I think every teacher dreams of that day, right, where the the students are actually eagerly asking questions of of the text or of the teacher of each other. Mm -hmm. Right. And so... It's a process, and I think it's really important for educators to think about because so much of of our our background and our our system of education is kind of built upon this whole testing and questioning, you know, method. And we have not, we haven't stopped to even ask ourselves if this is if these are the kinds of questions mm-hmm. that we want to ask. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I want to share a few. Um, when I was working at the University of Dallas and we were um, doing some professional development for schools, I have this document opened up. Um, some of the things we did, we realized the teachers really truly needed help because they often are super stressed about becoming a classical school. It's new. And they're used to having comprehension questions and worksheets, you know, and so it's a scary thing to change it's a completely different philosophy, right? Right, right. <laughs> so, um, so here's an example. Um, so instead of asking questions about information, like instead of what are the names of the siblings in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the myutic question would be, compare the characters of the four siblings in the novel. So you're getting kind of more at the root of the character of the, the siblings, not just what were their names, right? right. Mm-hmm. And then um, instead of asking who was the first person to discover the web in Charlotte's Web, we could ask 
How was Charlotte's Web discovered and what was the response to it? See, so you're getting to where you're posturing the student to make a relational connection with the story. So I think that the heart of good questions goes back to the heart of relational connections, which goes right to the science of relations, which is extremely important in your book, In Vital Harmony. Right. I don't think that there's any magic questions that we are going to be able to come up with that will just, because relationships aren't like that. They're, they're right. organic. So there's no formula for asking a question that will spark a relationship. But then, you know, what is your posture? Are you open? Are you interested? Are you wondering? That that was a good word. Trey used that word. And it just really reminded me that that particular um, attitude, mental attitude is, is really critically important in, in, you know, maintaining a, a kind of a position of lifelong, being a lifelong learner, you have to wonder. Right. You, you know, you stop wondering, you'll stop learning. So, so here's, here's what I wonder about sometimes. <laughs> if you are, if, if, if one of our listeners finds herself in a classroom where the students are just not wondering at all. They're not, they're not asking those questions. They're not, you know, um, they're not engaged in all the ways that we just described. You know, what, what do you do? Uh, you know, I guess, I guess the, from an administrative standpoint, some teachers may find themselves uh, being, feeling at least forced to just sort of push through that and just plug along, right? Well, just make sure you 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 get to the end of the textbook, right? And so there, there's there's one situation for you. Let me let me give you another question and 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 perhaps these two will round out our, our conversation. Um what do you do when you're a teacher and you you know you've read in vital harmony and you see it and you 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 understand the principles or at least you're you're coming to a desire to understand the principles let's say to live out those principles in your actions and you start to make some changes in your own classroom um but then you then you realize that that really a lot of these um principles are um because of these differences in philosophy uh you're really working up against a much larger system which is your school or maybe it's your society, right? And you're like, wow, okay, this is going to be a lot more work than I thought. I thought maybe I could just read this book and just change out my my questions and, and bada bing, bada boom, here I am. And that's just not the, the case. When you discover these principles and you start to live them out, you realize that uh, you, 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 may, you may be, uh, at least in your situation, somewhat of a, a, lone, a lone warrior, right? So what advice do you have for uh, the teacher who um, is, is trying to apply these principles uh, in the classroom, um, but is, is really going up against a, a different set of principles and therefore a different set of expectations? I, I think that, like I said, <laughs> you said you wanted to round it out. Uh, this is exactly the kind of situation where I would have said the question is almost more important than the answer. The fact that you have a principle in your mind and you're saying, how can I make this principle work in this situation means you're at least in that posture of being open to discovering an answer. You know, you, there isn't necessarily a concrete answer to this. I mean, I certainly don't have all the answers. Um, I haven't figured out all the questions yet, but 
but you know, you're in that situation and you're right. I mean, we live in this culture where the kids have probably had more screen time before they go to kindergarten than, than my generation had, you know, by the time they graduated high school because mm-hmm. of the kinds of screens that they have and they're so, you know, interactive and addictive and that, that sort of thing. Um, and, you know, all the programs stream all the time, you know, <laughs> not like when I was a kid, it's like this program is on it's Saturday morning at nine o'clock and if you miss it it'll be on next Saturday at nine o'clock see you then so so you know in this culture where we have the screens and the entertainment and even that you know how do I make these educational principles work when my kids are addicted to being entertained or they expect to be entertained and we're asking them to do really hard mental work that nobody else has ever asked them how to do and those are questions that you, like you say, you're to your teacher and you're finding yourself in this frustration. And that is what I think, why I think that every generation of educators has to keep asking these questions because the world changes, circumstances change, and we have to keep asking the same questions that Plato asked about education and uh, Aristotle asked. We have to keep asking them and keep trying to find answers that you know especially for specifics about how because the world is always changing it, you know it's in constant people don't change we have the same innate human nature you know but yeah we, we... Well, that's i think you're exactly right and and thank you for 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 just pinging the ball right back over the net back into my <laughs> field <it>. uh <laughs> <laughs> because that's that's exactly what we've we've been talking about and trying and trying to therefore model. Um, I've been thinking a lot about, uh, and I think this this is related. Um, I, I've been thinking a lot about uh, just sort of relationships within within the church and and the role of the pastor. And I bring this up because I think a lot of things in the church come down to, um, okay, so so what is you know, doctrinally correct, and then what is sort of the pastoral advice on how to apply these doctrines, right? And so the the classroom teacher uh, notably finds uh, himself in the position of having to pastor, as it were, uh, the class, but also act in a pastoral role um, towards uh, parents as well as administrators, right? Um, Just as much as a pastor finds uh, himself in the role of working with the flock and working with uh, those above him and 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 whatnot. I think the teacher has to think. Okay, well, I know what's true. I know what what the guiding lights are, so to speak. These principles. Okay, well, now how do I live them out in front of this set of students who have these parents who are giving me grief about these specific things and this boss who really wants this uh, in her inbox every. Okay, I won't get that specific, but I've had experiences <laughs> where. I probably uh, maybe did not um, sort of um, being so driven by the principle thought, well, you know, I've just got to, I've just got to sort of force this principle into, into existence. And yet I think there is some wisdom in figuring out, okay, well, how do I sort of live this out? And as long as I'm not being asked to do something that is gravely wrong, um, maybe I will administer the, the SRA, uh, booklets this quarter, but you better believe I'm going to have a really heart-to-heart conversation <laughs> with my principal uh, before next quarter, uh, because these things are important. Yeah, they definitely are, and I just, 
like I said, I, I'm asking questions. And at the moment, I'm asking questions about questions because I think that it's, it's important for those of us who care about education to keep ourselves in that posture of being able to, being in the right mindset to find the answers, you know, in this like constantly changing and complex world that we live in. Well, Karen, we're going to end our interview with a question that you can answer. Okay. <laughs> uh, so we ask uh, our, our uh, guests at the end uh, to tell us a title of a book that perhaps has had an impact, a huge impact on your life. It can even be a book from your childhood or a book that uh, maybe you wish you had read sooner in your life or share with us a quote that's very meaningful to you and tell us why. Okay, well, I mean, obviously for me, there's there's all of those those Charlotte Mason books, yeah. but um, I didn't have a whole lot of time to prepare for this question, though. So, so I was like, okay, a quote? Am I here? Am I there? I just grabbed one of the books that I'm reading at the moment, and it's um, it's a book of selections from various medieval philosophers i think i think the book's called medieval philosophy but um so it's everything from like augustine they count augustine as medieval kind of you know and and working their way up to to other ones but anyway the one that i'm reading right now is hugh of saint victor oh i love him <laughs> yeah i haven't gotten very far into it but i i ran across this this quote that it, it, it actually kind of relates to what we've been talking about. He says Pythagoras was the first to call the pursuit of wisdom philosophy. And Pythagoras is, um, I'm going to have a geometry here, you know? And he, 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 they, he was the first one to call the pursuit of wisdom philosophy and to prefer to be called a philosopher because before that, the people who were philosophers had always been called sophists. Um, or which means wise man. But he, fitly indeed, he called the seekers of truth, not wise men, but lovers of wisdom. See, it's not just that you have something, like it's a possession, but it's a relationship, lovers of wisdom. For certainly the whole truth lies so deeply hidden that the mind, however much it may ardently yearn toward it, or however much it may struggle to acquire it, can nonetheless comprehend only with difficulty the truth as it is so it's you know the lovers of wisdom keep asking questions <laughs> oh that's good now tell us that what that book is what's the title um, what is the title of the book it's 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 um trying to think the, well the title of the whole book is just medieval philosophy i think it's part of the modern library collection mm. Medieval philosophy, selected readings. I mean, that's that's what it is. And the Hugh of Saint Victor part is part of the Didascalion, if yeah. I'm saying that correctly. Yeah, that's great. I love it. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you, Karen. This was a real treat. I'm really appreciative well, of you. Thank you, thank you for inviting me. I really enjoyed that, and I appreciate you letting me explore a podcast with you know not just talking about like something I kind of know about, but just something I'm in the middle of exploring because that was fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening. 
We invite you to experience the art of teaching through interactive learning communities at our Patreon page. Visit patreon.com forward slash classical education. Also, be sure to join the conversation on our Facebook community at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash classical education. We are a listener-supported podcast, so your support makes this podcast possible. As the great artist and educator John Ruskin once wrote, Well, my friends, the final result of the education I want you to give your children will be, in a few words, this. They will know what it is to see the sky. They will know what it is to breathe it. And they will know, best of all, what it is to behave under it, as in the presence of a Father who is in heaven. <laughs>